As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The three words spoken by Jesus on the first resurrection evening change everything for all humanity. Peace to you. In one sense, the three words, uh, two in the Greek and probably one in the original Aramaic, are simply a greeting. Good day. Hi there. Or as I was greeted one evening when visiting a friend from the church family down in Lewisham, safe. Safe man, I think, was the actual word. But peace to you is much more than simply hello. Peace to you on this first resurrection evening, spoken by the Lord Jesus, triumphant, raised from the grave, speaks of friendship with God today, a future with God tomorrow, one as a result of the forgiveness he brings to us from the cross. We need to be clear that this phrase, peace to you, is not an offer by Jesus of global harmony in this world. Jesus never promised to bring an end to all wars in this world, quite the opposite. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of war, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Nor is Jesus' phrase, peace to you, suggesting a kind of guarantee of family harmony. Quite the opposite, Jesus actually declared, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. You become a Christian and you will find that Jesus turns father against son and son against father. 
But this is the same Lord Jesus who just three days earlier had been nailed to the cross. It is the same Lord Jesus who had been certified dead by professional executioners. It's the same Lord Jesus who had been intimately prepared for burial and laid dead in the tomb by his close friends. And now Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, stands before his disciples, risen from the grave, and declares peace to you. And this changes everything for all of humanity. The tyranny of death is thwarted, the grip of mortality is broken, the terminal disease, that is life, has a cure, the tomb is empty, the corpse is risen, death's power is broken, there is something beyond the grave, you will meet God one day, your maker. It changes everything for all humanity. The word peace is used 14 times in Luke's account of Jesus' life and teaching. The angels use it at the opening of the gospel as they announce the birth of the Lord Jesus. You'll remember it from the Christmas period. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is, friendship with God today is possible, peace with God. The crowds use the word as Jesus enters Jerusalem, as the, just before they bay for his blood in Luke chapter 19, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So peace on earth, he's come to the earth, and now peace is available in heaven. He's ascending to heaven. Friendship today, a future tomorrow. And then... At a key point in the gospel, Jesus turns to a woman who was notorious for her broken and damaged life, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Friendship today, a future tomorrow, stemming from the forgiveness he wins at the cross. Here then is the glorious offer of Easter. Death is not the end. I am not alone. We are not just a collection of chemicals in a sack destined to rot in the ground. There is life beyond the grave. And we need not walk through this world as atomized individuals, all, all alone. One of my favorite novels, I don't read a lot of novels actually, but one of my favorite novels is this one, Charlotte Gray by Sebastian Fawkes, which I'm just going to ruin for all of you right now. If you've not read it, I'm sorry about that. I was alerted to uh, Sebastian Fawkes' Charlotte Gray by my wife actually. Uh, we were staying away on holiday and the bedrooms were downstairs. I was upstairs in the kitchen. I heard this loud sobbing coming from one of the bedrooms. I thought, what have I done wrong? Um, is it our wedding anniversary? <laughs> Actually, she was concluding uh, Charlotte Gray. Right in the middle of the book, we meet uh, a professor of philosophy. No child born knows the world he's entering, and at the moment of his birth, he's a stranger to his parents. When he dies many years later, there may be regrets among those left behind that they never knew him better. He's forgotten almost as soon as he dies because there's no time for others to puzzle out his life. 
After a few years, he'd be referred to once or twice by a grandchild, then by no one at death. No one at all. Unknown at the moment of birth. Unknown after death. This weight of solitude a being unknown. And yet, if I believe in God, I am known at the hour of my death. I would wish be, to be known unto God. And those words, peace to you, by Jesus, risen from the grave, God himself, tell us that we don't need to be unknown. We can be known. Now, the book traces through two pairs of characters. There's two Jewish boys and they end up crossing into the gas chamber. That's the cause of the sobbing. And then there's a, a, a couple, Charlotte and Gregory, and they end up crossing the threshold into the church to get married. And as I read it, you'll notice that Fawkes has done something quite brilliant. He's, he's described both events in exactly the same way. In other words, if the professor is right and there is no God, it's utterly meaningless. There was another room, another door with bolts and rubber seals over whose threshold the two boys, amongst many others, went through icy air and disappeared. They crossed into the cold interior of the church, heavy with the scent of cut flowers and the murmuring of the organ into the soft air and disappeared. No God utter meaninglessness. No God, no justice. No God, no right, no wrong. No God, no reason, no purpose. The risen Jesus on resurrection evening, peace to you. It changes everything for all humanity. The first funeral I ever attended was that of my grandmother. I must have lived a very sheltered life. It was 20, I think it must have been about 25. And I remember driving away from the, uh, from the graveyard. It was one of those filthy days in late February, early March in North Norfolk, and the, the rain was driving almost horizontal, and we just laid my grandmother into the grave. And I remember thinking to myself, it's utterly, utterly pointless. All ending. But those words, peace to you, spoken by the risen Lord Jesus, why they speak of triumph and purpose and friendship with God available today and a future with God for eternity as a result of the forgiveness won by Jesus on the cross. The offer of Easter. Us as somebody is typical of you Christians, it's kind of sentimental, wishful thinking. It's the spiritual equivalent of Bambi for immature infants unable to face the harsh realities of this world. No, no, the evidence of Easter. So our reading is just one part of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But if you have a look at verse 37 through verse 43, you will see that it is laden with sight and touch and the kind of logic that we expect in any leading courtroom. And so you'll notice that, and, and this is just a tiny snippet of the evidence available, you notice that the resurrection of Jesus was not expected. You see verse 37, they were startled and frightened, 
and thought they saw a spirit. So it's not as some would have it that the disciples were desperately hoping Jesus might rise and manage somehow to persuade themselves to believe that he did. No, it was the last thing they were expecting. They were frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. And then you'll notice from 38 and 39 that the resurrection of Jesus was not a switch. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. It is I, myself, touch me and see. You know how some people suggest either that Jesus never went to the cross and somebody else, perhaps Simon of Cyrene, took his place, or that the person who appeared to Jesus' disciples as the risen Jesus was some kind of double and that they were kind of taken in and then went and spread the news of a risen Jesus across the world. It's absurd what people persuade themselves of in order to not believe the evidence. But no, this was the same Jesus the Jesus who had been crucified and buried, and he stands in front of them and shows him them his hands that have been pierced by the wrought iron nails and his feet and later his side. See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. And then the resurrection of Jesus was not simply something spiritual. Look at verse 39 through 43. See my hands and my feet, it's I myself. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. So this isn't just some sort of spiritual vision. This is tangible, physical Flesh and blood, risen from the grave, Jesus of Nazareth. As one wag put it, ghosts don't leave tooth marks. So the crucified body of Jesus was definitely dead. The dead body of Jesus was certainly buried. The occupied tomb of Jesus was clearly empty. The risen body of Jesus was repeatedly seen. And the witnessed resurrection of Jesus was undeniably physical. And this changes everything for all of humanity, whether you like it or not, or choose to believe it or not. One legal expert has estimated that if each eyewitness to the physical resurrection of Jesus would be given just 15 minutes of courtroom time at the stand the evidence would extend over three weeks of uninterrupted court time. A QC who was brought up atheistic, uh, who I and a couple of others spent time reading the Bible with, became a Christian. I asked him after he'd become a Christian, why have you become a Christian? To which he replied, I am compelled to, the evidence demands it. This is not the wishful thinking of a deluded group of infantile sentimentalists who can't face up to the reality of life in a world without God. Quite the reverse, it's those who cannot face up to the reality of a creator God who want to continue holding him at arm's length and refuse to surrender to the rule of their creator who insist on believing the most bizarre nonsense in order to deny the fact that Jesus rose physically from the dead in the face of all the evidence. 
It's extraordinary what people will believe in order to cling on to the idea that Jesus is not God. So the offer of Easter, the evidence for Easter, and the explanation of Easter. And we find that in verses 44 through 49, which we're going to read together now. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms is all of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus himself said, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Luke wrote his account of Jesus' life to show us that everything that had been promised over thousands of years had been achieved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus did not come as a bolt from the blue. Jesus was not some kind of flash-in-the-pan invention. No, there's a whole matrix of history and explanation of Jesus for thousands of years before his arrival. And the point Jesus is making here is not, as some suggest, that every single line of every chapter of the whole of the Old Testament is explicitly about Jesus. You sometimes come across Bible teachers who engage in almost an artificial exercise of trying to make every single passage of the Old Testament explicitly speak of Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that here, and he's not saying that back in verse 27 either. Rather, he's saying that the whole of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. That friendship from God is now available. That a future with God is on offer as a result of the forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross. You'll notice that verse 46 speaks of what happened then at the first Easter weekend. And verse 47 speaks of what is happening now, even here, a thousand miles away. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is Jesus' death and resurrection, which we are celebrating this morning. And from the opening pages of the first part of the Bible, right through to the last chapter of the Old Testament, Repeatedly and regularly, specifically and particularly, we read of God sending his anointed Christ to deal with our sin, his judgment, and death. 
Now, I'm not going to do this. We've all got our roast lamb to go to, so I won't, or whatever it is we're eating for lunch, but uh, I, I, won't, uh, I won't go to, into this now, but I could take you to Genesis 3. I could take you to Genesis 22. I could take you to Exodus 12, to Leviticus 16, to Numbers 27, to Deuteronomy 18, to the whole book of Joshua, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, to Psalm 22, to Psalm 69, to Psalm 110. I could take you to the later prophets, or rather the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets. And I could show you that from beginning to end of the Old Testament, God promises that he will send his leader, his good shepherd, his prophet, his king, who will suffer and die and carry his judgment at our human failure. And then with the price having been paid, would rise again and offer forgiveness, a future, friendship, The time I first ever understood this, and I hope uh, you'll forgive me for using a, a childish illustration, was when somebody used a children's illustration to explain the cross to me. It's uh, an illustration invented by a famous children's evangelist from the 1920s or 1930s. I didn't hear it then, I hasten to add. But he took that famous verse from the prophet Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, that's God in heaven, has laid on him, that's Jesus, on the cross, the iniquity of us all. I'd never understood the cross before. He put it like this, it's as if here is you and me, here is our iniquity, our sin, the thing which all of us know we've done not least our rebellion against our creator. And here is God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that is God in heaven, has laid on him, that is Jesus on the cross, the iniquity of us all. The punishment is paid. God's judgment has been satisfied. Justice has been done. Love is declared. I am forgiven. Friendship with God. A future with God. Forever. Well, that is what happened then at the cross. And of course, Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is a logical necessity. Having paid God's judgment at all that you and I have ever done wrong on the cross... With the judgment paid, death has been dealt with. He has to burst out of the tomb because the wages of sin is death. He has died for our sin. And so he rises from the grave for our justification. And that brings us then, verse 47, to what is happening now. So that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Why, it's as if with this great act to which the whole of history has been pointing, that stands at the fulcrum of human history, with that great act accomplished now, now, this message is to go out to the ends of the earth. It's like when you drop a rock into the middle of a pond or chuck a stone into a, rock, into a pond and then you have the, the great splash and then the ripple and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads and here we are today and I am proclaiming 
repentance, which means simply to turn around, to turn back to God, and forgiveness of sins, friendship with God, a future with God, coming from the forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross. Uh, There will be people here this morning, I'm sure, who are just looking into the Christian faith or perhaps turning up for an Easter one-off, or maybe you're here with friends and family. We're absolutely delighted that you're here and so glad you've come. Thank you for joining us. But here is the message of Easter. And whether you like it or not, or believe it or not, there is a future for you beyond the grave, either with God or without God. Somebody from the 10 o'clock congregation I was just speaking over there just before uh, last week sometime sent me the, the interview with Jeremy Clarkson uh, that he did in the Times last uh, Saturday or Sunday. I think the guy thought, obviously, I wouldn't have enough to say on Easter Sunday morning, so he sent me across, and Clarkson has been reflecting on his death, and it was quite poignant. He said, oh, at age 62 now, I think about death pretty much every day. I know I'm going to be in a hole where I shall rot. I shall be there forever. Or at least until a property developer decides he needs the graveyard for a new housing estate. And then I shall be landfill. Well, no, Jeremy Clarkson, you are wrong on every count. Jesus is risen from the grave. You will meet God, your maker, And either you'll meet him forgiven or unforgiven. And in eternity, unforgiven apart from God. But it doesn't bear thinking about. Friendship with God. A future with God. Stemming from the forgiveness that he won at the cross. And for those of us for whom this is, if you like, revision, well, it changes everything, doesn't it? Every deed done in the name of Jesus, every prayer prayed, every kindness in Jesus' name, every act of service, every aspect of our Christian life, peace to you. It means something. There is life beyond the grave. There is friendship with God today because of the forgiveness that Jesus won at the cross. Let me lead us in prayer. How we thank and praise you, our Father, that Christ died for sin once for all time, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. How we praise you that with the price paid, he rose triumphant from the grave and he stands as, as Lord of history, as the ruler and judge, the one who loved enough to give his life that we might be forgiven. How we thank you that life is not meaningless. 
how we thank you that there is such a thing as right and wrong. How we thank you that we can use our lives usefully in your service, knowing that all is not in vain. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.